I tell you, if we ever needed those showers of blessings, it would have to be this moment in Earth's history. Oh, we're praying up at Andrews University. God, do a new thing. You know that line, showers of blessing, that's right out of the book of Ezekiel. God says there will be showers of blessing. We need those showers. Thank you, Tammy, for singing that. And that testimony of Molly's, isn't that something? What God has done. God bless Molly and Hal. We never know. You wake up at the beginning, it's just another day. But life can be irrevocably changed in just a split second. But praise God, she's here. Talk to Hal tonight. When you step out onto the road, you put your life in your hands. I go running everywhere I go to preach. So this morning I said, I'm going to run. And I have a little gizmo that tells me how far, how far I've run. So I said, I'm going to run into Thompsonville. You've heard of the place. It's near here. <laughs> I'm going to run into Thompsonville. I have no idea what the neighbors are like. I have no idea what the traffic is like at, at this time of the, the morning. But uh, a beautiful little countryside, then you come into the little town, and I'm making my way just past this. There's a major intersection where the road shoots off to your right. And then all of a sudden I hear, and a runner's ears are always tuned to hear because those are the nails of a dog coming up behind you. <laughs> and there were two of them. God bless those Thompsonville dogs. There were two of them. And uh, you never know with a dog. It's just... And you yell at the top of your lungs and hope that that will somehow instill respect. But um, they just kept going, so I kept running as fast as I could. I went running once. I'd just flown over to London for a satellite series. Early in the morning, woke up with jet lag. Oh, Got to shake this off. So it was, the sun had just come up. I don't know, about 6.30, whatever. Wintry February. Frigid, still air. So I go, out, I, I go out running about a half mile from where I was staying at Newbold College, outside of London. Crossed a parking lot, a pub. You know, those little restaurant slash bars that they have. Pubs. Can't remember the name of it. I think it's something like Roebuck or, or something like that. Empty parking lot as I, uh, as I run across, and at, for some reason, there's a telephone pole here, and my eyes, for some reason, are attracted up the telephone pole, and here is a sign. It's just been nailed up. And I looked up at the sign, and I read the words, I scribbled them down, have them right here. Fatal collision. This was a Thursday morning. Fatal collision here Sunday, 10.38 p.m. If you have information, call the police at and then the uh, English telephone numbers. I tell you what, you can be minding your own business just running through life, but when you come to a place, because I quickly did the arithmetic, today's Thursday, good night, four, four days ago, somebody's life, somebody's dreams, Somebody's prayers, somebody's everything. 10.38 at night, gone. Just like that. 
It's a sobering experience, isn't it? I mean, I'm driving down here yesterday. Black cross in the middle of the median. What's that tell you? A white cross later on the side of the road. What does that tell you? Somebody perished here. It is a sobering experience whenever you stand on the stand beside the place someone has died. Tonight I want to stand with you. There'll be, there'll be no balloons, no little teddy bears, no flowers, no, no plastic roses, no, just a cross. But I want to stand with you and for a moment take in the drama that made that cross possible. Let's pray together. Oh, God. Oh, we're thankful for, for Molly and Hal. Could have been a cross beside the road. You spared their lives. Doesn't always happen that way. Certainly didn't happen that way, Holy Father. On that fateful Friday afternoon, they now call good, but it was an awful, awful Friday. It didn't happen that way 2,000 years ago. As we step back out of time into that distant memory, let Calvary come alive. Let us know the truth, and may the truth set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to the story of Calvary. Let's go to Calvary. Last night was Thursday night in the Passion Weekend. I know the days of the week, but last night was Thursday night. We went to the upper room. Jesus there with the eleven. Tonight, Friday, tomorrow, Friday, we're moving, we're moving toward the Sabbath and Sunday before our time together is over. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. This is the, this is the, the apex of the gospel story. You know that the gospels are really crucifixion stories with an introduction. The dominant portion of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. All crucifixion stories and resurrection, of course, with a tacked-on introduction. Everything in the history of the universe moves to Calvary. Calvary is the center of all time. Matthew chapter 27. I want to read this with you. Think, brood with you through these familiar verses. I want to pick it up. Let's, let's, let's begin in verse 24. This is Matthew 27. I'll be in the New King James Version. Whatever translation you have, I'm just glad you've got your Bible. Thank you for bringing it tonight. Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water. And what did he do? He washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, read those words out loud with me, His blood be on us and on our children. I don't know how many times I have read the crucifixion account and I've always seen in those verses just this, 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 this self-curse, as it were. People calling down, put His blood on us, go ahead and kill Him, we don't care. Then I came across a... A gentleman that, uh, with whom I had the privilege of becoming friends with before he died, Roger Morneau. Does that name ring a bell with you? The great prayer warrior, Roger Morneau? Yeah. So I never met Roger Morneau. We were going to fly him out to, uh, to lead a prayer service just before Net 98. Are you old enough to know about Net 98? Did you hear about it? Yeah. Okay. So we were going to fly Roger from uh, California out to uh, pray with us before Net 98, having a big day of fasting and prayer. 
And uh, three days before he was to fly, he died of a heart attack. So I never had the privilege of meeting him face to face. But a great, a giant of a prayer man. And you, you, you have read his books, Answers to Incredible Prayer, More Answers to Incredible Prayer. You, you holding up one right now. All right. You can get him at the ABC. Anyway, through Roger, I learned this. Uh, Roger says, you know what? Every morning in my life, I read Matthew chapter 27, verse 24 through verse 54. He said, I figure that if I can go to the highest place a human can kneel and bow at the foot of Calvary, and I can begin every day at Calvary, I'll be doing all right. And I said to myself, you know what? If a great man like Roger, a great prayer warrior, will go to Calvary every day, a little guy like me, I should be going to the same place. So thank you, Roger. He taught me that journey every morning. Read it just this morning. But it was in that rereading every day that I suddenly realized, wait a minute, verse 25, this isn't a curse. This is a powerful prayer. What did the people cry out and say? What did the people cry out to Pilate? What did they say? His blood. Say it out loud with me. His blood be on us and on our children. And so every morning when I get two verses into that uh, 30-verse recitation of Calvary every morning two verses in and I come across that line I stop right there and I say God I want you to be with Kirk I want you to be with Christy I want you to be with Karen and me may his blood be on us rather than a curse it occurs to me this is a beautiful powerful prayer God let the blood of Jesus be on me today what, what would happen if the children of the church were prayed over every single day across this land and every mother, every grandmother, every grandpa, every father would pray at the beginning of the day, oh God, your blood be on my daughter, your blood be on my son, your blood be on my grandchildren and on me too. Can you imagine our kids going out into the day under the blood? Now I'm praying for Kirk and his wife and, and Chrissy and her husband. Oh God, may your blood be on Kirk and Chelsea and may your blood be on uh, Chrissy and Andrew. And guess what? We just uh, found out a few months ago that we're going to become grandparents in October. <laughs> and so I'm praying again because it's Kirk and Chelsea having the baby. So I'm praying, oh God, and may your blood be on little baby Nelson, whatever it is. <laughs> Actually, they've taken the picture. They know what the baby is. But the kids these days, you know what they're doing? Something I've never heard of before. They have these gender coming out parties. So they're the only ones who know. Everybody's going to come at the end of June. All the family and friends are going to be gathered together, and then they're going to slice a cake, and if it's pink, you know what it'll be, and if it's blue, they kind of do these things. Can you believe that? It's gotten into this generation. Just tell everybody. But what a powerful prayer. Verse 25, And all the people answered and said to Pilate, His blood be on us and on us our children. You know, maybe Roger Morneau is on to something. Maybe you read the story of Calvary every single day for the rest of your life. Don't tell me your worship is too busy. You don't have the time. You can slip the story of the cross in. I try to read it every single day. And I come to verse 25. Oh, His blood be on us and on our children. Then, verse 26, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Some scholars believe there were up to three scourgings. Three scourgings. You know, the Latin's coined a word, excruciatus, which means in Latin, from out of the cross. From whence comes our English word? What, what, what English word do you think comes from excruciatus? Excruciating. The next time you say, I have an excruciating headache, you're saying, I have pain that comes from out of the cross. Whatever the scourging is about, whatever this barbaric form of execution in which you, in which you actually asphyxiate, you, you drown... You're unable to breathe. You're nailed in a position that forbids you to suck your diaphragm up finally far enough 
to drink in a morsel of air, you drown. Three scourgings, and when he released Barabbas to them, he had Jesus scourged, and he delivered him to be crucified. Drop down to verse 32, and now as they came out, these are the Roman soldiers and Jesus, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the school, they gave Jesus sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. This is a room full of college students, which I have the privilege of serving. I probably would pause right there and say, wait a minute, did you catch what happened? They're passing a bottle around, and when it came to him, he would not drink. Verse 33, and when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when, they, when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then, why wouldn't he drink, by the way? Why wouldn't he drink? Because he can't risk a moment of inebriation. He can't go one split second without his mind in instant contact with the king of the universe. And I see some younger faces in this room, and so I'm going to pause to just remind you. That's why the devil is so big on alcohol. The moment you ingest that fluid, it begins slowly to put your brain to sleep. And when your brain is asleep, it's a heyday for hell. God cannot intervene. When your brain is asleep, you won't cry for help. And in that inebriated state... You may drive a car, you may make a sexual decision that you'll regret for the rest of your life, but in that inebriated state, you, it's curtains for moral control. That's why alcohol is huge in the devil's arsenal tonight. That's the only reason. It puts your mind to sleep, and you can't think. You say, I just drink. I'm not really a big drinker. Any drink. Your mind begins to nod, and you're dead meat. You learn something from Jesus right here. He would not touch it. He will not drink even a sip. He's dying of thirst, but he won't touch that liquid. Verse 35, and then they crucified him. And they divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 36, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. That's what you can do every single morning. Just sit down, open up Matthew 27. If you get tired of Matthew 27, then you go to Mark 15. If you get tired of Mark 15, you go to Luke 23. If you're tired of Luke 23, then you go to John 19. If you're tired of the Gospels, then you read Isaiah 53. You, you've got five cycles you can go through every day and go to Calvary. And you'll be a better man for it. You'll be a better woman for it. Go to the foot of the cross every single day. That's what you do. Sitting down, they kept watch. That's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to keep watch on the figure in the center cross. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Verse 37. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Yo, if you're the Son of God, come on down from the cross. 
Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others himself. He cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Count him in the New King James. Three times the word if appears. Three ifs. Matthew ends with three ifs. Guess what? Matthew begins with three ifs. Have you heard those ifs before? Somebody met him after 40 days and 40 nights without water or food and said, if, if, if someone meets him, this is the desperate and final showdown, and the three ifs are embedded in those taunts. If, 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 if Jesus goes through, if he is as victorious as he was in the wilderness, it's finis. For Lucifer, and he knows it. If, if, if. Even the robbers, verse 44, Matthew reminds us, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, here we go, here we go. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, that would be noon, until the ninth hour, that would be three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, megalephone in the Greek. Megalephone. What English word sounds like megalephone? Megaphone. Some people think that this is a, this is a little a sob, a whipper. Oh, my God. my God. This is no sob. This is no whisper. This is a scream in the dark. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you stand at the sight of someone's death, it is a sobering experience. What's happening in that naked scream? What's transpiring in that desperate cry. What's up? Richard John Newhouse, in his book, Death on a Friday Afternoon, he jots it down. Something has been lost. Something has been withdrawn, and it cannot be called back. Something dreadful is transpiring now. Matthew Arnold, the English poet, let me read this to you. He captures this sense of lostness in his, in his poem, Dover Beach. You remember that from, uh, from English literature days, Dover Beach? Let me just read a line, a stanza from that poem. The sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of, folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Do you hear that line? Its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. Something is being lost here that shall not be recovered. My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? 
I've heard, I've heard the scream of human pain. I walk down to hospitals. It's part of my sacred duty as a pastor to step into hospitals too frequently. I've walked down the septic corridor of a hospital, and I've heard behind a closed door, I've heard the muffled scream of human pain. I've heard somebody screaming behind that door. I've heard my children scream when they were kids. I've heard these words, my God, but never uttered like this desperate prayer. But I have never in my life, ever, heard a scream like this. You know, it is, it is humanly impossible. It is humanly impossible for you and me to possibly fathom the depths that are captured by that one shattering scream in the dark. My God, my God, why have you cut me off? Is this, a, is this, is this a, the, uh, the cry of human pain? You suppose that's it? I mean, why, why, why? Is that it, do you think? I've stood by parents... I've stood by all, all sizes of caskets, full-size caskets, tiny little 18-inch caskets. I've stood beside parents sobbing over that clay form, the tears salty falling onto that lifeless promise of hope. I've heard the question. I've heard the question a hundred times. But why? 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 Is this the cry of human pain? Is this the cry of human suffering? God, why is this happening to me? Is that what Jesus is crying? Is he crying? Why is this happening to me? You remember Mel Gibson and the, the Passion of the Christ? Does that kind of ring a bell? It was years ago. Remember, they, they came out with this full-length uh, Hollywood production on the, on the death of Jesus. You remember that. So I get this little letter in the mail, and it says, For senior pastors only, with your spouse, must bring photo ID. Come to Chicago to a private showing, pre-release showing of the Passion of the Christ. So I went over. It's in a church. Senior pastors only, their spouses. Checked your ID at the door. They didn't want the press to get an advance because it had already stirred up quite a bit of controversy. And you've got to admit, it was pretty brilliant marketing tactics for whoever was putting that together. I sat beside a pastor. I'm telling you, he cried all the way through. The scene of Jesus scourging is just, it's just, it's just, it's revolting. But if you watch Mel Gibson's treatment of Calvary, You'll walk away with the conclusion that what Calvary is about is human pain. <laughs> whoa, whoa, did he suffer for me. And if we make the conclusion that the cross is about human pain, we have missed the whole point of Calvary. I had a dear, dear friend who died of cancer, tethered to a morphine drip. You can't tell me six hours on the cross is equivalent to three weeks of that drip. Can't be. There have been martyrs who have died. My friend Steve Bohr kind of taking us through the dark ages with this Jezebel and Elijah. That's good stuff. 
Great teaching. There have been martyrs who have died more painful deaths than Calvary. Come on, let's be honest. Calvary is not the summit of human pain. Something else is happening at Calvary. Something else is transpiring in that center, on that center cross. Let me read this to you. This, this is Desire of Ages, page 753. This classic on the life of Jesus. Listen to this. All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. When Jesus is given a theme, do you know what he's talking about? Every single time, salvation for the chief of sinners. God is not somebody to be afraid of. God is somebody to be a friend of. You run not from Him, run to Him. Run to Him. Jesus' stories are to draw us back to God. Not a God that is a harshest, the harshest critic in the universe. The God who is the greatest lover, the greatest father, the mother, the one whose arms are outstretched. Salvation. Did you catch that? Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme, but now with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. Now listen, so great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt, end quote. Is Calvary about physical pain? No, it is not. It's not about pain. That movie was wrong. Calvary is not about human pain. Calvary is about the divine price, the divine price to redeem us from that pain, this painful existence. Well, Dwight, are you saying, are you saying that there's, there's no pain in this story? Are you, are you serious? This is brutal to the max. This is no anesthetized picnic for Jesus. Excruciatus, remember? Barbaric. From out of the cross, he's suffering. But how did she put it here? So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. What agony are you talking about? She's talking, I'm talking about, she says, the mental agony. The mental agony. Something is happening. That's why that cross goes dark for three hours, pitch black. Because God says, I'm not, not, I'm not letting the, anybody in this universe see this moment now. I will be in those shadows alone with my son. Nobody will see this. He won't even know. My God, why have you cut me off? But in that funereal pall of blackness, something's happening. Something's happening. The only cryptic clue we have to what is happening on that center cross is this line, this naked scream. Read verse 46 again. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a megaphone, with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where did Jesus get that line? Where did the Savior of the world find that line? It's a prayer. It's a prayer from the Old Testament. I want you to go to that uh, one little prayer, and the cryptic clue is embedded there. Go back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. 
it is more than obvious the moment we begin to read Psalm 22 <laughs> that, this, that there's only one person in the universe that could possibly ever have prayed this prayer in its entirety. Can't be David. It cannot be David. It must be the son of David. Psalm 22. I want you to go back to Psalm 22. Turn back. Don't miss this in your own Bible. You'll be amazed at what you see now in Psalm 22. Jesus has reached back to that ancient prayer and he has put it on his lips and we hear only the first line. Some scholars believe that there was a practice in uh, synagogues where the, the leader up front would begin a prayer, a psalm, by reciting the first line. And then all the worshipers, having learned that prayer, as they did, all the worshipers that would then quietly, under their breath, be repeating the prayer all the way through. What is amazing is that it works for the middle cross at Calvary. The opening line of the prayer is cried out by our Lord Himself. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, there it is, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, I am not silent. Where are you? I'm crying to you. Can you not hear me now? Something is happening in the mind of the one praying. Watch this. Drop down to verse 6. But I am... What's it saying yours? I am a... I'm a worm. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. I am a worm. Jesus, you're not a worm. You're the eternal God incarnated in a human flesh. That's what you are. Don't forget it, Jesus. No, I am a worm. Something has happened to Jesus because just hours earlier in that high priestly prayer on the way to Gethsemane, John 17, he says, oh, Father, by the way, Remember the glory that I shared with you from the beginning? He knew then who he was. But now I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. What is happening to Jesus? I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, what is happening to Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we, say it out loud with me, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, tell me, tell me, how much of the iniquity? How many people in this room? How many viewers on this network? How many human beings? All. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You say, Dwight, what sins would that include? All. But don't worry about all. Because the moment I said iniquity, the moment we injected the word sin, your mind just like that saw it. You know what it is. Whatever the sin is, it doesn't matter to me. I have my own struggles, trust me. But the moment we think sin and iniquity... Immediately, if the conscience is working, this vehicle through which the Holy Spirit speaks, just like that, we got it. We know. Whatever that sin is, it doesn't matter to me what yours is. You have it. I have it. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You say, Dwight, I don't have it. We have the sin of lying, so now you're also in that uh, category. We all 
have sinned. Isaiah 53, 6, And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, God made him who knew no to be for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He's made to be sin. He said, Dwight, I don't, I don't, I don't see how that can work. Me either. But the sheer naked terror and agony of Calvary is proof enough it worked. The sins got transferred. Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away, John 1, who takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. Something mysterious, so, something has been unsheathed in the darkness. And now that dagger is slowly being brought to the heart of God-made flesh. Wow. I am a worm, and no man a reproach of men and despised by the people. Now, keep reading. You say, Dwight, I don't really think this is Calvary. Okay, so the opening works, but keep reading. Verse, verse 7, all those who see me ridicule me. Remember, he's praying under his breath now. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, ha, verse 8, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Have you heard those words before tonight? Have you heard the words tonight? Yes, you have. Who, who taunted him with those words? The rabble and the chief priests and the thieves. He trusted in God. Let him rescue him. Oh, look at verse 9. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. There's never a mention of the father, of a father, in Psalm 22. The only mention is of a mother. You took me from my mother's breast. Keep reading. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Now hit the pause button right there. I need to tell you something fascinating right there. That you have been my God. In the Hebrew, it reads like this. Eli, or Eli, Atta. You have been my God. Eli means my God. Eli, Eli. Lama sabachthani. You have been my God. Eli, Atta. But if you're listening to somebody speak it in the original tongue, if you're listening to it being prayed in the original language and you're not listening carefully, instead of hearing Eliata, you can hear Eliata. And Eliata means Elijah, come. And the man in the dark at the foot of the cross hear this naked scream and it's shh. Bore preaching about Elijah. Elijah at Calvary. They misheard him. He said, You have been my God, Eliata. And they heard, Eliata. It's just where you put the, the, the vows. Still not convinced this is a Calvary? That the, there's only one person in the universe who could ever have prayed this prayer and meant it all the way through? Keep reading. 
Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. When, when does your tongue cling to the top or the bottom of your mouth? When does it cling? When you are thirsty. Don't miss Sabbath morning. We'll talk about that. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Now look at verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Enclosed me. They pierced my... There's only one person in the universe who could have prayed this prayer. He's praying it right now. Look at verse 17. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. You know why? Because he's raw naked. They've stripped him of his last dignity. They're gambling over what he had. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Isn't that amazing? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the prayer goes, the prayer goes subterranean. The prayer goes inside, and just this muttering, this mumbling, slowly praying the great messianic Psalm 22. But then something very interesting happens. In fact, Felix Mendelssohn, when he decides to make this grand choral composition of Psalm 22, right there in the middle of verse 21, he moves from the minor to the major key. Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Pause. And some of your newer translations actually show a space there. Do you see that space? There's a space. Pause. Now in the major key, you have answered me. And now everything now is moving towards this positive, positive, positive. But I've got to take you to that last line. Watch this. Verse 31. They will come. He's still praying. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. If that, if that phrase is taken, in, if it's translated in the Nephal in the Hebrew, instead of he has done this, it can be translated, it is finished. He prayed that prayer from beginning to end. Because we needed the cryptic clue to know what's happening. If Calvary is not about human pain, then what's it about? It's about the divine price. And what is the divine price? The divine price is you must pay the wages of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is. What kind of death is it? It's the opposite of the gift. What's the gift? Eternal life. Then what kind of death would it be? Eternal death. Eternal death. God made him to be sin. My God, you have... This is it. This is it. You have cut me off forever. Desire of Ages again. Page 753 and 772. Listen to this. Satan... With his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. Yeah, ladies, come on. You know, you're, you're, you're mopping up the kitchen after your husband was there. And he's cleaning it up. And uh, gentlemen, we really should be doing this ourselves. But when you take that, that dishcloth and you've wiped it all down, what do you do with that dishcloth? What does it mean when you, when you, when you wring that dishcloth out? What do you do with it? You put all the strength you have in those delicate hands of yours and you clutch that cloth and you twist the hand and that which is in your hands is just twisted till the last drop of water is gone. Satan, with his fierce temptations, has wrung the heart of Jesus. 
The Savior could not see. Now listen carefully. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to Him His coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell Him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. Jesus feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal." End quote. It's over. I am gone. You have cut me off. You see, we always have Jesus dying, but He knows, oh, I'll be up. I'll be up. It's not a big deal. I'll die now and I'll come up. Satan has so wrung his heart in the desperate last-ditch hope that he might walk away from this cross and say, you can have this sorry lot. I'm coming home, Father. And could he have? Could he have? He could have. And we never would have been born. Gone. Satan wrung his heart. Jesus believes that their separation was to be eternal. Now, here's page 772. It was not the spear thrust. It was not the pain of the cross that caused the death of Jesus. That cry uttered with a loud voice at the moment of death. The stream of blood and water that flowed from his side declared that he died of a broken heart. His heart was broken by mental anguish. He was slain by the sin of the world. My sin, that darling little sin that you refuse to let go of, the one that came to your mind just a moment ago when I said sin, bing, you saw it. That sin that for some reason we refuse to part with, that sin killed him. One sin, just one. Have mercy is the sinner's prayer. Have mercy on me. I killed the Son of God. He died forever. He died forever. You say, Dwight, he didn't die forever. Oh, yes, he did. I heard a little story when I was a boy. I'll share it with you in closing. A little story about a, another little boy. Maybe it was in Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories. I don't know where I heard this story, but it's just been in my mind ever since. A little boy... Desperately ill. Doctors examine him and they discover that they need, he, the boy, must have life-saving blood or it's over. Now, in a, in a case where a child needs blood, who do you, whom is tested first? Huh? Of course, the mother. The mother. She bore him. DNA didn't work. Next one would be Papa. Didn't work. Next one, little sister. It worked. Yeah. The doctors are very pleased. They found the lifesaver. So they stick it down on their knees, and the papa's there, and they say, now, li listen, honey, we need your blood. Just take some of your blood. You'll save your brother's life. Would you be willing? She turned her little face away, lost in thought, Finally, she turns back and looks up into that ring of adults staring down at her, and she bobs her curls. She will do it. So they take her into the laboratory. You've given blood. You know how it is. And there it goes into that little plastic bag. Life-saving blood. When the procedure is over, hold that cotton swab. As she's walking out of the lab beside her daddy, she reaches up and she tugs at her daddy's coat, and she says, Papa, when will I die now? 
And like a bolt out of the blue, it hit the dad. She just went through that procedure believing that she would die. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm asking you a question right now. Did that little girl die for her brother? Yes or no? Of course she did. Where did she die? She died up here. She paid the price. I'm dead. You live. Did Jesus die the forever death? Absolutely. Yes, He did. He died it up here. My God, you've cut me off. He died it up here forever and ever. He was willing to die forever so that you and I might live forever. He was willing to die forever so that you and I might live forever. There's only one word for that. For I'm convinced that nothing in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.